The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. We're glad that you are here this morning. You all seem very quiet today. Hmm. <laughs> all right. Let's turn our Bibles to Deuteronomy 29, please. Deuteronomy in chapter 29. You might be familiar with one of the verses in this chapter already, the last one. I I hope if you aren't that you will become that way as we read at least that verse and, and many of these others. Deuteronomy 29. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. Now Moses called all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and to all his land, the great trials which your eyes have seen, the signs and those great wonders Yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear to this very day. That is a very significant verse, my friends. We'll see something related to that in our morning service. Actually, we did last week. But you know, you can have all kinds of experience, all kinds of things God can do for you, provide for you, give to you, and yet you don't have eyes to perceive it. You don't have the grace to understand what God has done for you and that leads you to complain and and, uh, want evil things and all that that we saw in 1 Corinthians 10 last time. And so this is a very important thing. We can be blind to those gracious gifts that God has given to us. I trust that we will not because we've been alerted to this problem. And I have led you, verse 5 says, and I have led you 40 years in the wilderness... Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandals have not worn out on your feet. You have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or similar drink, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. And when you came to this place, Sihon king of Heshbon and Og king of Bashan came out against us to battle, and we conquered them. We took their land and gave it as an inheritance to the Reubenites, to the Gadites, and to half the tribe of Manasseh. Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper in all that you do. All of you stand today before the Lord your God, your leaders and your tribes and your elders and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones and your wives, also the stranger who is in your camp, from the one who cuts your wood to the one who draws your water, that you may enter into covenant with the Lord your God and into His oath, which the Lord your God makes with you today, that He may establish you today as a people for Himself, and that He may be God to you, just as He has spoken to you, and just as He has sworn to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I make this covenant and this oath, not with you alone, but with Him who stands here with us today before the Lord our God, as well as with Him who is not here with us today. For you know that we dwelt in the land of Egypt, and that we came through the nations which you passed by, 
And you saw their abominations and their idols which were among them, wood and stone and silver and gold, so that there may not be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations, and that there may not be among you a root bearing bitterness or wormwood. And so it may not happen when he hears the words of this curse that he blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my heart as though the drunkard could be included with the sober. The Lord would not spare him for then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy would burn against that man and every curse that is written in this book would settle on him and the Lord would blot out his name from under heaven. And the Lord would separate him from all the tribes of Israel for adversity according to all the curses of the covenant that are written in this book of the law, so that the coming generation of your children who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a far land would say, when they see the plagues of that land and the sicknesses which the Lord has laid on it, the whole land is brimstone, salt, and burning. It is not sown, nor does it bear, nor does any grass grow there, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in His anger and His wrath. All nations would say, why has the Lord done so to this land? What does the heat of this great anger mean? Then people would say, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord God of their fathers, which He made with them when He brought them out of the land of Egypt. For they went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods that they did not know and that He had not given to them. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against this land to bring on it every curse that is written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and wrath and in great indignation and cast them into another land as it is this day. And then he closes with these words, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Why? That we may do all the words of this law. Amen. May God bless the reading of His Word today. Let me encourage you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where you can follow along as I share the Word. These things, as Moses said, belong to us and to our children. And so they are for us, and I pray that our eyes will be opened and that God will break the bread of life, as it were, the Word of God to us, and that we'll share a a good portion of it. It's here. It's warm out of the oven. A little good manna for us to enjoy. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. You will recall perhaps that last week I went over verses 1 through 13, but I felt like I gave a short attention to verse 13 in particular. It is a very important verse of Scripture, so I want to go back and review and connect uh, this to the prior section as well as that which follows and ask you to really work on knowing these verses because they're so critical. Uh, certainly in our battle against sin, there's probably very few verses in Scripture that are more important than verse 13 of chapter 10. There are others, uh, you know, certainly I'm not going to downgrade other verses of Scripture, but this is critical for us. 
So we didn't have time to think about temptation at the kind of depth we needed last time. So our message title today is simply temptation. The truth is with humility and help from God, we can overcome the temptation to sin. We can overcome the temptation to sin. One of our major battlefronts in the Christian life, if not the battlefront that we need to face, is that of temptation. Uh, temptation is that which works internally and causes us to either sin internally or to sin after that externally. And so we have to deal with this from the beginning. As we think in our hearts, that's who we are, isn't it? What goes in and affects our thinking and, and how we think will will manifest itself in our character and in our behavior. And so we have this great battle. Maybe we could say the battle. The battle. If we never succumb to temptation, would we then sin? No, I, I think not. I think in a sense we would we would have victory in every case. So the verses before us are starting in verse number 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And so I've replicated those verses there as they help to you to memorize those verses, especially 13. It's broken down into four lines, A, B, C, and D. They will follow, that will be our outline today. Uh, we'll use those headings to help us locate ourselves in the verses, but you can memorize it section by section, and soon enough you'll have this long verse committed to memory, which I would highly encourage you to do. In fact, I did last week. I wonder if any of you took on that project and worked on memorizing verse 13. The context in which we sit is. Uh, more than we can kind of go back and talk about the whole thing again. But in chapter 10, the apostle is addressing the issue of Old Testament examples of disqualification, of failure. And he's concerned about the Corinthian church because they have a certain view of Christian liberty and license and um, freedom to do certain things that Paul is going to tell them are invalid for Christians to do particularly having to do with idolatry, um, eating meat sacrificed to idols in the idol's temple, things of that nature. And they're kind of thinking, yeah, we can handle this. Uh, we have a, a good, strong conscience. We have Christian liberty, and so we can do this. But Paul is saying, now listen, you're walking right along the edge of a cliff that's crumbling and you're going to get into trouble. And he's concerned for himself even. At the end of chapter 9, he says, I don't want to fall into disqualification. I, I discipline myself. I keep my body in control so that I will not disqualify myself even after I've preached to other people this very message. So he's concerned about it himself. And if if it's good enough, as I say, for the Apostle Paul to be concerned about it, it's probably good enough for me to be concerned about it and you as well to be concerned about it because of anybody, we would have no concern about the Apostle Paul, would we? You know, confronted directly by Christ on the road to Damascus, changed in an instant, baptized, 
And then he begins preaching Christ immediately. And he gives a li- lives a life of sacrifice for the Lord. We would think nothing of a danger, would we, to the Apostle Paul being disqualified. But in fact, he was concerned about that. And so we should be as well. So that's the context. He gives them several examples from the Old Testament. The people of Israel had all these benefits. Christ going with them in the pillar of cloud and fire. Um, food and drink and baptized into Moses and you know going through the Red Sea on dry ground, kind of the highest of, of miracles. They had all of that. And yet they complained. They lusted after evil things. They became idolaters. They committed immorality. They tested Christ. They, they complained about God's provision. They were destroyed by a destroying angel. Multiple examples of that we looked at last time in the Old Testament. And the Apostle Paul is saying to these Corinthians, look, that happened to them for us to learn. Look at verse 6. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also did. And verse 11. Now all these things happened to them as examples. They were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So he's, he's, this is a big warning to them. Don't take it lightly. He's telling the Corinthians. There are dangers around the corner that you need to watch out for. So, you think you're alright? You think you stand? You think maybe like the Apostle Peter, Lord, I'll go with you to to death. I'll follow you right now tonight. And he didn't realize that he was speaking out of too much pride and too little humility. And so the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, in light of this, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So under number Roman numeral 1 here, on page 1 of your notes, temptation demands humility. Our whole message is about temptation today. Temptation demands humility. As right with God as you think you might be, considering what happened to Israel, you need to take heed. There's no space for pride in our lives with regard to this matter. As if we're better than the poor old souls of the Old Testament. Our human nature is not like theirs. It's exactly like theirs. Precisely like theirs. Don't tell me that you cannot fall into temptation. Don't tell me about you know, how you can, you're not going to be tempted to be unfaithful. To God or to your spouse. Don't tell me that you can be, you know, impervious to some kind of sin. That is foolish talk. Our natures are flawed and susceptible to temptation because of their plenteous examples of failure and because God has warned us and because of the disqualification and judgment that comes to those who reject God and because of the the end of the world is far closer now than it was for them. Remember that phrase at the end of 12? or uh, uh, Sorry, verse 11. Upon whom the ends of the ages have come. I mean, he's saying, look, this is the end of the ages. And we're 2,000 almost years beyond that. The Lord can show up at any time. It's essential that we give humble attention to this matter of temptation. We have to watch out for ourselves that we will not fall. 
look at uh, Proverbs 16:18, a, a verse that is another one we should have great familiarity with. Proverbs 16 and verse number 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Yeah, you know the world what the world calls this karma. You know that guy that's very proud and then they see him fall and they just laugh because they say, you know, how karma got him. This is a biblical principle. The biblical principle is that God exalts those who humble themselves and He humbles those who exalt themselves because they're not such hot stuff. We aren't. And so we, like Jesus taught to the disciples, look, take your place at the lowest seat and if the master of the house wants to lift you up and elevate you in the sight of the others there, then he'll do that. You let him do that. But don't do it yourself. Many a soul has exhibited that confident pride that is exampled throughout Scripture. We mentioned Peter already today. Uh, think of Uzziah before his leprosy. Remember? He went into the temple and offered sacrifices which were illegal for him to offer. Nebuchadnezzar before his insanity. Sennacherib the Assyrian king before his army was destroyed by a destroying angel, 185,000 plagued to death. The churches in Laodicea and Sardis, you know, they thought they were something. But Jesus said to one of them, you think you're rich and well-fed and clothed and all that? Look, no, you're nothing. You're naked. You're poor. You're wretched. You're blind. You're sinners. Before their candlesticks were removed, they thought they were something. When Haman was building his gallows, however tall they were, I forget how high, he thought he was pretty good too, but he wasn't. Belshazzar, before the handwriting on the wall, in the book of Daniel, chapter 5. Hezekiah, when he showed his treasures to the Babylonians. You see all these examples in Scripture of pride coming before the fall. Remember David when he had to have just had to have that census. I got to know how many warriors I have, and and his advisor said, hey, "Don't do this. You don't need this." God, you're, he was just acting in pride. And the ultimate example, Satan. I will be like the Most High. Pride comes before the fall. You might think, "Look, I'm strong enough to handle this." I can watch this because I'm a Christian. I can go to this bar or this place because I'm a believer. Watch it. Pride comes before the fall. Don't think like that. Pride brings God's judgment, which is exactly what happened to the devil. 1 Timothy 3.6 encourages us not to elevate young men into pastoral ministry before the time, before they're mature enough to handle it because then they could fall into pride and the condemnation just like the devil did as well. Now, fall here, when I when we talk about falling, verse 12, take uh, heed lest he fall. Falling does not just mean falling into temptation. We do that, but this fall is much more serious. This is falling into judgment. 
falling into disqualification. Whatever it means, it's not a good thing. It's a bad thing. Okay, so don't don't overlook that word or say, oh, that's 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 just a minor problem. That's a major major problem. Jesus told us to humble ourselves. Jesus exampled for us humility. Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. I mean, he's in heaven, sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. And however they figured this thing out, how how do you figure things out when you're God? You know everything. You don't figure things out. But Jesus leaves and comes down in the form of a servant, a bondservant, in the likeness of men, takes, takes on him that form of service that's even lower than that to come to die on a cross like, a, like an awful criminal. For our sins, He did this. He didn't... He, boy, He had to be humble to do that, didn't He? Humility par excellence. Nothing, no better example. James teaches us, humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Peter teaches us. In fact, one of the ways you show your humility before God is what 1 Peter 5, well, 5, 6, 5 and 6 talk about humbling ourselves. And then it says in verse 7, casting all your cares upon Him. A critical connection between those two verses. You show your humility to God by means of casting your cares upon Him. Too often I think we rip verse 7 out and say, I've got to cast all my cares on God. I've got to do that, and if I do that well enough, then I'll be able to sleep at night. Well, one of the reasons that we cast our cares upon Him is because we know we cannot handle them. We have to be humble and recognize only He can handle them. He is the God. He is God, and we are not, and so we show our humility before Him. So don't think that you're above sinning like the people of Israel sinned. Think about it. You already have done so many times in your short life. So don't think that now that you're immune to it. Certainly not. So, temptation requires humility, but secondly, temptation is universal to humanity. Look at verse 13, the first phrase. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. This phrase really means that to be tempted is to be human. Temptation is a human thing. This verse contains two facts and two promises about the matter of temptation. We're looking at the first fact, that is, it's universal to humanity. What Israel experienced and what you are experiencing is nothing too different. They're so similar that the truth that we're talking about here applies to you just as well as it did to them. The timeless truths apply to us all. They lusted after evil things. So can you. They complained. So do we. They uh, committed acts of immorality. You can do that too. They became idolaters. You could do that as well. Temptations are unavoidable. So you think about it in your own life. What are your temptations? What are your trials that elicit, or maybe I should say, that solicit you to do evil? 
or to think in an evil way. Trials of sin are everywhere because of our broken human nature. Temptation is universal because sin and the sin nature is universal. No one has lived up to God's standard. And Solomon in Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, There is no one who has lived upon the earth who has not sinned. Everyone falls under that same judgment from God. Now, turn in your Bible to the book of James in chapter 1 because in James there is a little segment of the text that teaches us about temptation. In James 1, 12 through oh, about 17, James 1, verse number 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. Now, I'm not going to treat this verse in any length except to say, those of you that are tempted, which is all of you, take heart when you endure temptation, you receive a blessing from God. Blessed is he who endures. It is a blessing when you endure temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Man, enduring temptation is a great feeling. You've had, you've had that feeling before, I think. Perhaps, I hope. Haven't you? When you, in, when you fall into temptation, just take the opposite. What, what, what comes with that? Guilt, regret, feeling bad. When you endure temptation and you have victory over it, how does that feel? There's nothing better than a clean conscience. The, pure, the purity that you have in that victory is so much better than the pleasure that you would have had by whatever your temptation is, indulging that thing. You cannot have any better feeling than that. Not, a, not an arrogant feeling. A humble feeling of satisfaction and thanksgiving to God. Blessed is the man who endures. Verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God. Man, that happens all the time. I saw you know, bumper sticker theology is often so pitiful. Somebody said... The bumper sticker had something, a bunch of stuff on it, and you get down to the small print in the last line, and it was something to the effect of, "Why does God do all this terrible stuff in the world?" I said, "Man, you've missed the whole point. It's not God's fault. It's our fault. We're the ones that turned away from God. We're the ones that are receiving the penalty of our error. It's not God's fault." So don't say that God made you do it or God put this solicitation to do evil in your pathway. No, He does give us trials, but it's our nature to take those trials and turn them into solicitations to sin. And that's really the twofold idea of this word perasmos in Greek, which is trial or temptation. The trial side is God gives a test. The temptation side is we take the test and we turn it into something that solicits us to do evil. But God doesn't make that solicitation. Where does that come from? Well, look at what the text says. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He Himself tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his what? Own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, 
James says, my beloved brethren. We'll stop there with that reading. Each person has his or her own desires. Those are built-in desires. There's kind of this whole debate today about, you know, are some certain sins like genetic or built-in or uh, unavoidable or something of that nature. And I'm not going to get into all of that. We can talk about that with great profit another time. But I will say this. The general idea, the general principle is we are sinners by birth and by choice. And so the general problem is our nature. And our nature can be adapted by our nurture. Okay, so we we have tendencies towards certain things just because of who we are. We, we we're part of a broken, sinful race that has all kinds of problems, and mine might be a little bit different than yours, but altogether they're just common temptations to all of humankind. There's no difference between us in in effect, in in reality, but we have our own desires. These desires are are our desires, not somebody else's. They're not the devil's. They're not somebody else's. If we lust after something that is prohibited by God, it is a problem inside of us. That's, that's all. You have one place to blame. Okay, You don't blame God and you can't blame the devil because the desires are inside of us. These desires to seduce, seduce us to, to be like what they want us to be. Isn't that what the text says? They were drawn away by our own desires and enticed. They wish, their wish can be directed toward any kind of sin, but this sin boils down to things like selfishness, self-centeredness, self-autonomy, self-pleasure, control, and, and things like that. And then this enticement has an offspring. The offspring, the little baby, that too often gets born and is very healthy and bouncing baby called sin. You need to stop the birth process, my friends. You need to cut it off. Somebody said this kind of helpfully, when a temptation comes to you, you have about five seconds to get with it and cut it. Throw it out. Stop. The longer you let that thing roll over in your mind, the more sin grows. And, uh, you know, it doesn't take nine months for that thing to grow. (laughs) Six seconds and you're in. Okay, Five is made up. Just hang with me, okay? The idea is cut it off quickly. Temptation. You know in your own experience how that is. So, the offspring. God empowers you to choose wisely. If you're a believer in Jesus... You have the Spirit of God in you. You have what you should have is the Word of God coursing through your veins. You should have memorized verses like this, 1 Corinthians 10.13. And anyway, what happens? The desires conceive. They give birth to sin. And what happens to sin when it, you know, it's all grown up? It results in death. If you sin, you will die. That was spoken to Adam and Eve in the garden, remember? God said, when you sin, you will die. Now, they began to die immediately, physically. They died immediately spiritually. They were cut off from God. 
This is applicable all the time, however, not just in the garden. If you sin, you will die. Sin produces the fruit of death. Go back to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Romans 6.21 says this, What fruit did you have then, speaking of your old life, in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Romans 7, verse 5, just a few verses later. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. The fruit of death. Sin never produces anything better than death. So if you want to avoid dying physically and spiritually, all you have to do is avoid sinning. You want to avoid dying from COVID? Just don't sin. If you wish to avoid the eternal consequences for sin, you must avoid sin for your whole life. How's that been working out for you? We must flee to Christ. We, must, we have to appeal to Him. We're, we're sinners. We're under guilt and condemnation because we have not done what God has demanded of us to do. And so we appeal to Christ. It's that simple. That's the Gospel. That's the good news about Jesus. That He cared for us enough to die in our place to pay for our sin debt so that we could have eternal life. And then, of course, He arose again from the dead because He didn't have any sin to pay for for Himself. And He justified us and demonstrates that justification. So, that is the fact that temptation is universal to humanity. And we saw the process of how it works a little bit in James chapter 1. We saw the fruit of it in Romans 6 and Romans 7. So we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and we get back to verse 13 and we see the second part there. It says, No temptation is overtaking you except such, such as is common, but God is faithful. Now listen, temptation does not nullify the faithfulness of God. It does not nullify the faithfulness of God. When you're in the midst of it though, you tell me, how do you feel? It feels like it's beyond what I can handle. Where is God in this trial and this test? Faithfulness in God means that when He says something, He means it. What He says He will do, He does. When He speaks, it is true. He never fails. He never leaves His own. He never forsakes them. Even if you think that God is absent. It's just that you're not seeing Him in the situation. His faithfulness is backed up by the fact that He ever lives. He never dies. And He's all-powerful. So He can, without fail, keep those promises that He has made. When we are tempted to be unfaithful, we need to look to our faithful God. Look to God, my friends. He's never unfaithful. He's always faithful. He's always available. He's always strong to save. He's always desirous of our holiness. Meditate this and fix this in your mind when you think, God, I cannot beat this. This is too much. This tendency, this, this thing that I do, this thing that I think about, this whatever it is, you remember that God is faithful. 
He has not left you alone with no resources to deal with the problem of your temptation. Fourthly, so temptation, universal, does not nullify God's faithfulness. It requires humility. And number four, temptation is always beatable, I call it. It's always something you can win in. The route to victory over temptation may not seem evident at first. And it may seem costly. You know, sometimes when I've counseled people, they have, they have driven themselves so far into a sinful lifestyle. And they have these temptations, these you know, addictive things. The only way that those can be conquered is by making drastic action. And so you'll you know, hear me counsel you that, and you'll say, man, that doesn't seem possible. How can I make such a radical shift in my life? I mean, I've got to leave what I'm doing, maybe even get a new job. I have to leave all my friends who are tempting me into this addictive behavior or whatever it is. What am I going to do? How can I do that? If you've driven yourself that far into sin, it takes more and more costly measures to get yourself out sometimes. But those measures are not something that you cannot do. In fact, you can. God commands you to do them. So the two promises are, God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above what you're able and He will make a way of escape. Those are the two promises that come out of God's faithfulness. He will not experience, allow you to experience too great of a temptation. Whatever therefore comes your way, you can endure the pull, the draw of your old life, the immorality, the idolatry, is not, if you're a believer in Christ, is not so strong that it's invincible. It does not necessarily have to swallow up the Christian. God can help you to pull away from those things. Now, why is it then that temptation seems so hard to deal with? What is going on where you say, man, I can't, I can't do it? Perhaps this particular temptation that you're facing, you haven't faced before. It's a new one. It's different. Perhaps then the Lord is stretching you into a new level of victory. Perhaps He's trying to level you up in your maturity before God. Perhaps you're looking also at this temptation from the standpoint of the flesh. I can't do this. Yeah, you're right. You can't. You cannot. Indeed, for the flesh, any temptation is insurmountable. For our, you know, the mere power of the flesh, the kind of self-help methodology to get out of temptation. You know, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Uh, just have enough discipline and self-control and and uh, you know, subjection that you can put your body under, and I can do it. And enough positive thinking. That's just, that's just succumbing to another temptation, which is, I can do it. I'm proud. I have enough power. Not so, my friends. You have to rely upon the grace of God 
You have to rely upon the Spirit of God to help you. You have to rely upon the Word of God. I mean, Jesus didn't say, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God for nothing. He said we, do, we live out of, on the basis of God's Word, and one of the areas where we live is in temptation. He knows He's been tempted in all points like as we are. Yet without sin, never failed. Talk about endurance. Talk about endurance. You've never been taken out into the wilderness for 40 days by the devil, have you? Thank God. That was a, that was a, that was a tough road to hoe. For, no food? I mean, I get hungry after four hours, not 40 days and 40 nights. You know, talk about getting grumpy and hungry and all that. The Lord knows about all of our tests and temptations. Perhaps you've sold yourself into such deep sin that you're required to you know, realign yourself with where God wants you to be and that requires some stiff realignment. Perhaps you're not spending enough sufficient time in the Word of God in prayer so your spiritual strength is sapped. How can I? Yeah, how can you? When you're not in the Word, when you're not in church, when you're not spending time in prayer, you know, you're a weakling. What do you expect to happen when you face temptation? Yeah, so that's why we have to always, you know, come to our Sunday workout so that we can be strong. We come to our Bible daily to get our nourishment from God's Word. Then we can be strong. So the promise is that He will not give you more than you are able to handle with His power, of course. And the second promise is that He will help you to escape the temptation. God's faithfulness means that God always provides in a time of need. There's always a way to endure the temptation or a side door to escape the temptation. There are various ways that this can happen. You can flee like Joseph. You can turn away if it's something you, you cannot flee, but you turn away in your mind. You think about other things. You can pray. You can ask the assistance of a, a brother or sister. You can recite Scripture. You can replace the bad behavior in your life with good. Replace the bad activity with something better. You can repent of your sinful desire. And by the way, that's, that's critical for us to understand. Bad desires are a manifestation of sin. You agree with that? Or do you make an excuse and say, well, that's just how I am? No. Bad desires arise from sin. That which defiles a man doesn't come from... It comes from the heart where there are all kinds of adulteries and evil words and immoralities and idolatries and all that. Jesus taught us this. Sinful nature comes out. It's not the stuff that goes in. Certainly not food that makes us unclean. It's our own natures that are inside. And so we have to repent of the desire to do the bad thing. That desire is itself a sin. A sin. It's a manifestation of sin. And you need to repent of that. Lord, I shouldn't even desire that thing that I'm wanting to do. Whatever it is. Vengeance or immorality or or whatever. Suppose your temptation is to complain about a health problem that's going to lead to your death. Terminal cancer, 
or something else like that. Surviving the temptation does not mean beating the disease. Surviving the temptation means beating the sin. Beating the sin, not beating the disease. You can end up dying with a good conscience even though you will not have perfect health throughout the process because you've endured without sinfully handling it. Repeated practice of this throughout our lives prepares us for those end times in our lives, but it develops in us endurance and holiness. You learn holiness through the things that you suffer. In fact, it sounds familiar, doesn't it? Jesus learned obedience by the things that He suffered. What do you mean learn? Doesn't He know everything? Yes, but He learned by experience. It's like uh, as just a little hobby that I have in, in my uh, life that I do has to do with radio. And it's one thing to read it in a book and it's another thing to actually put it into practice. You can know certain things, but until you do them, you don't. You don't really know them. (laughs) That's a good example. Driver's education. Yeah, how hard can it be? There's a gas pedal, a brake pedal, and a steering wheel, right? Yeah, well, try that when you're 15 years old. Remember? Yeah, it's it's a little more than that. So the Lord learned obedience by experience, and we learn endurance by experiencing temptations and making it through those. And and, and holiness, which is developed through that, is very important because Hebrews 12.14 tells us, Without holiness, no one sees the Lord. Now, you know, put that into your theological uh, toolkit and remember it. Yes, we know we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. But that doesn't change the requirement that God requires holiness in His people. Be holy for I am holy. Victories over temptation tend to generate more victories. I can tell you that by personal experience. Failures tend to generate more failures. If you're on a generally victorious path right now in your life over temptation, thank God. Thank God for what He's done for you, how He's helped you to grow. Thank Him profusely. Keep watch for those temptations that will inevitably come. Engage the battle every time with the resources God has given to you. But if you're on a downward spiral right now, Allowing yourself to fall into one temptation after another because it's kind of it's kind of easier. You know, you don't have to resist. You can just give in. You get the, the pleasures of sin for a season, as the Bible tells about Moses. He rejected those, by the way. He rejected the pleasures of sin for a season, choosing rather to suffer ignominy with the people of God than to enjoy being an Egyptian leader and having all the pleasures available to him there. He chose the path of God, not the path of sin. But if you're in that downward spiral, you need to cry out to God and ask Him for victory. One victory here, one victory there. Little by little, the little temptations that you face. Don't let the little things go. Work on those too, so that you have a little victory, a little more, a little more, and those become a pattern. Get help from a friend. Get help certainly from God's Word and replace the time wasted in sin with time invested in the things of God and you will have that glorious thing called a clear conscience the next time you face temptation and you say, no, I will not 
dishonor my God and my King, my Lord and my the Holy Spirit who is within me. I will live for Him and I will enjoy that close harmony and relationship with Him. Temptation, my friends. Temptation requires humility. It's universal to us. It does not nullify God's faithfulness. And it's always something you can win in. Don't think that you are, you're doomed to lose. You're not. You're actually destined to win if you're in Christ. And He will help you to do that. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for this Word that allowed us to meditate a little bit more on the matter, critical matter of temptation. Lord, if there are some folks here this morning particularly who are struggling in this area, I pray for a special measure of Your grace and mercy upon their souls. That You would help them, that they would have victory over temptation, that they would recognize that although temptation is universal, it is not unbeatable. It is something that You have faithfully provided for us to get through. And I pray that they will begin one at a time to win little victories in their life over the evil thoughts and desires of their mind, over the evil behaviors of their hands and feet. And one little victory after another will experience the joy and satisfaction of walking with God instead of walking in sin. Thank You for this. In the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.